You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Hello, and welcome to Trillions Presents, the ETF story. I'm Joel Weber, and I'm the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. In this episode, we're going to focus on a critical part of the ETF's rise, which Eric Balchunas likens to something out of early Silicon Valley. It almost seems like Webs and Spy at this time were like the, the PC or the mouse where, back when Xerox had it, where some people just recognize its potential, even though the people who actually own it at the time don't see it. 100%. This is Dave Nodick. He's the managing director of ETF.com. The comparison to what happened with the Palo Alto Research Center, the Park Labs having the the GUI for what became the Mac, uh, and that sort of that idea, whether it's stolen or borrowed or whatever, it's very apt for the ETF for a number of reasons. It's it's apt because you can argue about the intellectual property and is it theft or is it you know uh, people just recognizing greatness and building on it, but it's also relevant because it was that big a phase shift in how people thought about investing. Nodig has been around ETFs pretty much since the beginning, and he says that, yes, the 1987 Market Break Report is largely credited as the genesis of the ETF, as that's where Nate Most and Steve Bloom got their idea for SPY. Success has a thousand fathers, so everybody tries to claim on a given day that they were the father of the ETFs. It's really whatever unnamed person probably slid that into the report. But I will say this, that... Once that idea was planted in that you know, SEC report, the idea was in the air. Bob Toll is president of his own ETF consulting company, but was with Morgan Stanley in the 1980s. And he says Nodig is right about there being something in the air after the 1987 market break report was published. He says people were trying to come up with something like a collective investment but that traded like a stock. Meanwhile, Leland O'Brien and Ruberstein are really trying to redeem themselves in the financial community, and they start working on a product called SuperShares. Up in Canada, the Canadian stock exchange is working on a thing called TIPS. All of these became the precursors to both securities. Remember John O'Brien from episode one, who, along with a team at Leland O'Brien Rubenstein, created portfolio insurance? But most people in Wall Street didn't understand what the heck it was. Some big asset managers did. Some big broker-dealers did. And they realized when the market went down, portfolio insurance required selling stock and buying bonds. As Toll says, O'Brien and his firm were working to redeem themselves because their portfolio insurance was largely credited to 1987's stock market crash. O'Brien says that what they were working on was the first ETF. Yeah, well, I think yeah. we were the creator of the ETF, only it wasn't called an ETF back then. 
He says they were communicating with folks at the Amex at the time. And we had a handshake agreement that they would not copy our product and they would benefit from the trading of it. O'Brien says the Amex didn't hold up their end of the deal. So they undercut us, you know, maybe not so intentionally, but maybe intentionally, and came out with the spider exactly one month and one day after the Super Trust began trading on November 5th, 1992. And when I called them up, they said, well, the handshake agreement is good for a month. <laughs> Meanwhile, up in Canada, a spy is waiting for SEC approval. A team from the Toronto Stock Exchange managed to get their version of a market basket product approved within a year. It was called the Toronto Index Participation Shares, or TIPS, and it tracked the Toronto Stock Exchange 35 Index. And this was an ETF launched in 1990. Now, if you go around to conferences like I do, there's a general view amongst the analysts that Canada came out with the first ETF. However, when I talked with people from that time, even from Canada, and they admitted that what happened was the Toronto Stock Exchange had come down and met with Amex and just, I guess they just, you know, were friends, buddies. They took the spy idea and basically resketched it up there. And the Canadian regulatory body is much more liberal than the U.S. We've seen that time and time again since then. They were in and out of approval process within a year. Dave Nodig says he's not privy to all those details about how tips came about. But one thing was for sure. Yeah, the Amex was driving it. And whether or not, you know, Nate showed the idea to somebody over at TSX or Toronto at that time, um, and they stole the idea and launched it there. To some extent, it's a little bit of, uh, I don't know, who who really cares? I mean, I suppose in retrospect, you can make a good, uh, you know, thriller movie out of it. Somebody running the briefcase across the (laughs) tracks kind of thing. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. We spoke with Peter Haynes, who began his career on the Toronto Stock Exchange in 1988 as an intern. I came back, worked full-time in 89, and TIPS were launched in 90, so I was part of the launch team for TIPS. So I do have that on my resume. Uh, TIPS, Toronto 35 Index Participation Units, uh, is what they were called. The symbol was TIP, listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange on March 9th, 1990. And probably the most interesting factoid of all is that there was zero fee. Haynes says there was no management expense ratio, or MER, at the time and that the exchange ran it as a way to give retail investors access to the market with just one trading vehicle. The $150 million that were seeded at the original launch of TIPS, all $150 million went to institutional investors. So that was a bit of a, a surprise and a shock. Haynes says that yes, there were conversations with Nate Most and Stephen Bloom at the time, but that the most significant influence on their product was not the Amex. The Philadelphia Exchange, as they were attempting to launch something called SIPs, Cash Index Participation Securities. And they struggled to get that product through the SEC. And this was in the late 80s or early 90s that they were trying this. And our management at the time had spent some time with the Philly guys and said, hey, let's try this in Canada. And where we were uh, lucky and I think forward thinking in terms of our regulators was the time from the time the OSC was approached to the time it was approved was, I believe, less than six months. So it was really, at the end of the day, uh, a lucky thing that the Toronto Exchange happened to be the first market in the world to launch uh, an ETF. Uh, But, uh, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Reggie Brown of Cantor Fitzgerald, whose nickname Mr. ETF, was working at the Philadelphia Stock Exchange when the PhilEx developed Certificate Index Participation Shares or SIPs. And I remember uniquely that they were born from the 87 crash and some gurus at the Phillips Stock Exchange came with an idea based on a report. And I do remember they traded briefly on the Philex. And in my role on the industry, I always recall, hey, by the way, the Philex had SIPs. And unfortunately, it was overlooked, not well recognized. And they were designed based on the report that came out from the government that said there needed to be a vehicle in order to help offset sell and balance orders in the marketplace. And the Philex was ahead of their time. But unfortunately, they went away. Brown says there was a legal issue with McGraw-Hill, who owned the license name. Of SP500, Standard & Poor's, and McGraw-Hill sued and successfully got an injunction around trademark issues around SIPs. And it stopped trading because of that. So the reality is these other products did come to market before SPY. Here's Eric again. So to sum this up, even though you may hear that Canada came out with the first ETF, that is true. But the idea was in the U.S. I think that's important. So it's a good footnote to the story. In the end, the fact that SPY is the biggest ETF on the planet, almost by twofold, says all you need to know. And the TIPS product has been bought and merged and doesn't even have that ticker anymore. And that kind of also matters to the story. So the fact that SPY outlasted them, outlived them, outgrew them, and is the most traded security four times over on the planet adds to its so legacy. But some have tried to take away from it by saying, well, actually, it wasn't first. And so I would say, well, it depends on how you define it. And I don't blame Toronto for doing it. It was a heads up play. 
But the fact that just because they had to wait four years, you can't really blame them for that. They would have been out in one if they could. They would have been at 89 if they could have. But why didn't these products that were birthed from similar circumstances at the exact same time gain the same success? Well, as Bob Toll says, there are a few reasons. Well, first of all, you had the most renowned index in the United States next to the Dow Jones Industrial 30, right, being the benchmark for it. It was a full replication. So there was no question on the back of the SEC that somebody was managing this asset. And you had the publications that they required daily of information to provide a level of transparency that was nowhere available in the mutual fund industry. Information including the composition the assets, the holdings, and what the weightings were. Also, these similar products hadn't undergone the same level of scrutiny with the U.S. government as SPY had. Because SPY, remember, was filed under the 40 Act, a move Toll feels was worth the wait. Oh, absolutely. Honestly, I do. You could have had a structured note, but then you realize you're taking balance sheet risk. At that time, especially after the 87 crash, nobody wanted balance sheet risk. Okay, then you say, okay, I'm going to buy a mutual fund. Well, that was what everybody thought was wrong to begin with. So now you have to have a new structure. So you have your choices, right? You can have a closed-end fund, which has premium and discounts, right? You could have a traditional mutual fund, or you could have this new animal called, at this time, an index share. And the index share was really, I mean, it was an epiphany. Dave Nottig says a lot of SPY's success can be attributed to its no-frills structure. If you actually look at the structure of SPY, it was phenomenally simple. A lot of the, the index participation securities models and things really were almost like versions of structured notes. Right? They were complex. They had counterparties that people weren't used to dealing with. And I think that the, the genius of the SPY model and then later the, the sort of more traditional 40 Act versions that came after it were they took really simple existing structures and they used those to create what they needed to create. Um, you know, they used the UIT structure to, you know, embed the index into the product. So that I think was a really critical part of getting that approved. But, you know, they used that structure that existed already, that lawyers were comfortable with, that everybody was comfortable with. And they said, oh, great, that's our investment vehicle. And then they took sort of a traditional prime brokerage model of moving large baskets of securities in and out. And they said, hey, we're just going to take what was then the default prime brokerage trading model. We're going to use that to do these creation redemption baskets. So what they did was take all the pieces that already worked and change as little as possible to make something new happen. And now, SPY's footprint is enormous as the largest ETF, with $270 billion in assets. For a comparison, the second largest ETF has $100 billion less in assets than SPY. It's really stood the test of time. Here's Nodig again. But, but in the end, all of these things come down to execution. And I think that's actually been the story of ETFs for 25 years, is it's always down to execution. Next time on Trillions Presents, how the ETF really started to gain steam. It wasn't until I was sitting on a trading desk and all of a sudden I could like hit a button and get a million dollar exposure to the queues. I was all in. Thanks for listening to Trillions Presents. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you want to listen. Trillions Presents is produced by Jordan Bell. 
with production help from Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.